and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited because today we're going to talk about dermatology. And dermatology and beauty, in my opinion, go hand in hand. And as you know, or you may not know, I'm doing a series of interviews with professionals that work in the medical side of beauty. And I'm really excited to welcome an accomplished dermatologist practicing DMV every year with two offices in D.C. and Annapolis who works with companies to make sure that they're doing the right thing by us and also has helped to co-found a brand. So she knows lots of different areas of how beauty and dermatology intersect. Please help me welcome Dr. Cheryl Burgess. Welcome, Dr. Burgess. Well, thank you for having me today. What a nice segment on medicine and beauty. Yes. Can you give us a 30-second bio? Okay. Well, I have been around for a while. I've been in medical practice for 33 years, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist practicing, as you said, in downtown D.C. and in Maryland. I am on numerous boards. I'm on the board of directors for the American Academy of Dermatology, the Skin of Color Society, and another international dermatologic society. I also am published. I'm on the editorial board of a few journals. So we look at the science that comes out and peer review to make sure it's legitimate science. And also myself, I do clinical research and a lot of it is skin of color. And a lot of these products and devices that are out there kind of come through my office because I'm a clinical investigator. And I'm the co-founder of Black Opal up until actually a couple years ago. And I'm a key opinion leader. So now I advise a lot of different companies like Johnson & Johnson, L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble. So I'm involved in a lot of other things, which I really like to kind of spread my wings now. Yeah, it's great. Let's go back to the beginning. Dermatology, was it a destination or a detour? (laughs) I would like to say it was a detour. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we didn't have a lot of Black people up there when I was growing up. And so my father, who was one of eight, had planned that all five of his kids were going to go to college. He got to go to college on a basketball scholarship. And with four girls and one boy, he was like, well, I don't know if you guys will get scholarships, so I'm a plan for you to go to college. And then after high school, when I decided, I don't know if I want to go to college, he said, you're going to take your butt and you go into college. So it was kind of, I wanted to go to art school. That's what I really wanted to do. So of course, I followed my father's direction and went to college. Then there was another detour. I wanted to maybe go into veterinarian medicine. And I had another mentor or professor who said, I think you would be great in medicine. And so I applied for medical school, got in. And then when I applied for residency, it was dermatology I liked. But 
unbeknownst to me at the time when I applied and entered in dermatology, it really was just on the cusp of cosmetic procedures starting to become popular and being researched and being studied. So it took me full circle in my wanting to express my artistic ability in medicine and what I was doing. It was funny because my dad and I kind of joked about that. I still did what I wanted to do. (laughs) So I love it for that reason. I do general dermatology as well because I like to use my brain every now and then, but I love the artistic and sculpting faces and doing all those types of things that we do with a lot of the fillers and the neuromodulators and the devices and things. So I love getting up, going to work every day. That's an amazing thing to say. Where did you go to undergrad and medical school? I attended University of Washington before coming out to Howard. So I'm on Howard Bison. And I finished in 1984 and had all intensive purposes of going back to the Seattle area. But I decided I wanted to stay a little bit more where I thought African-Americans had a little bit more of a chance. I kind of grew up during the time or when I was in college during the Baki case. And I don't know if you all know about that, but that was one of the first affirmative action cases and where he applied for medical school twice and was denied admission and blamed it on he would have had one of those seats that one of the affirmative action positions. So that kind of left the medical industry, I know, a little sour taste in the mouth and that they felt people were getting into medical school who didn't deserve to get into medical school. And I kind of decided at that point, I really want to go to HBCU college, which I didn't really know much about them, but I just was tired of being the only person in my class. So I decided after finishing my residency that I was going to stay in the DC area. I knew that. I knew I probably never would go back home other than to visit. You talked a little bit about choosing dermatology as your specialty. What drew you to it? Because you didn't know about the art part then. No, I didn't know about the art part then, but I got an opportunity to do research in NIH during one of my summers between medical school. There's a lot of medical schools in the D.C. area, and practically all the medical students who are going to stay in the area for the summer will tend to apply for jobs at NIH over the summer. So they're doing research. They're kind of approving their resumes and things like that for whatever residency they want to do. Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was with the public health service and they matched me up with the dermatology department. So I ended up doing research on Accutane. I'm sure you have heard about that for severe acne in one of my summers of medical school. And it brought me to realize that I really, really liked it. And it was a kind of a turning point in my thought process in that conditions that affect the skin affect people's psyche more than, say, congestive heart failure or lung disease or liver disease. And it can be something very minor, such as acne, which is what I worked on, that can be devastating to a lot of people. 
and the teen suicide rates can be up with kids with really bad acne. So Accutane was a revolutionary type of event and product that was FDA approved that saved a lot of people's self-esteem because the acne would be so severe to the point where people had to be on antibiotics for months and months and years and years. And so I felt that these were conditions that there were solutions to and that they could get better. Your patient got better. They just didn't stay chronic with you know, diabetes or heart disease or something like that. And the patients were relatively young where you can impact their lives at an early age. And so that I knew and being in research and I knew I wanted to do research once I got out of residency, everything just clicked. So you finished your residency, you decide on dermatology. Where did you work once you were done? Well, when I got out of residency, I worked at Kaiser Permanente for two years and I decided that I would work two days a week. So I would put 10 hour days in. So I put 20 hours in a week and the other three days I kind of sat in an office that I sublet it, twiddled my thumbs and hoped that patients would come in. So gradually I built up my private practice. And I think it was about the two-year mark. And when I resigned from my position at Kaiser, because I was making just as much in the two days that I would make on the three days. So I felt comfortable enough to be sustained in having a career and having some kind of income. And I wasn't as afraid to dive into it at least I knew I had something to fall back on. So that was a security blanket for me. And I really liked it because it increased my efficiency, my accuracy with diagnosis, because I had to see like 60 patients in that 10 hours by myself. (laughs) And so you had to be efficient. You had to be organized. You had to have a lot of the traits that I think helped me when I went into private practice. So you would think that those are the skills that you got at Kaiser that set you up to really excel in your practice, the efficiency and just being really on top of your game at all times in terms of being able to see patients and make the most of your time, like time management. Yes, time management, exactly. What made you want to have your own practice? That question, I don't know how to answer I just know that right now, I'm at that part in my life, like, I love what I do, but I don't like the business part of it. But early on, I did. I learned through the School of Hard Knocks, and my mother, who had a master's in business, worked for me for about 15 years. So just having the opportunity to work with my mom and have the opportunity to make decisions on my own and dictate what insurances I was going to take, what conditions I was going to see. I liked that aspect of it. But after being in practice for 33 years, that can just wear you down. And the strain of conducting business and having employees, I mean, I love what I do, but the hard part is managing employees. You briefly mentioned the non-surgical enhancement procedures. 
have you seen an increase in requests from Black patients and others in the BIPOC patient community as a whole for these procedures and enhancements? Yes, I have. And I think with social media, it's just skyrocketed. Then I got more inquisitive kind of questions like, is that her real skin? Because people put filters on things. So there are more questions about, can you really do that? I read this in a magazine. Can that really be done? And I think people really like the results they're seeing, but they can't believe if they're true or not. And so one of the main issues, I think in skin of color, research shows the results of when they look at the top five conditions and what bothers most people, and I'm talking about over a wide age range, not just aging issues, it's discoloration, it's uneven complexion, it's acne leaving post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So everyone wants a clear complexion. So they do question, is that a filter on that? Is that actually their skin? Because there seems to be some hope out there that, yeah, I can clear up my skin. And there's a lot of innovation and other things that have been researched and clinically tried in practices and offices that a lot of the products and things that we see do work. 20 years ago, they would say, don't do a chemical peel in black skin and this and that and the other. And that's not true. But you got to know what you're doing. So like I said, I'm on the board of directors for the Skin of Color Society. And one of our goals or one of our missions is to educate people, the consumer, but also educate physicians on what we can do and what we can't and how you go about doing it. Because it may be something that's not typical for skin of color, but if you do it this way, it can be done. So that's a lot of the work that I'm constantly doing and answering questions and things like that. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. So Skin of Color Society is a very important organization because of the work that relates to how innovation news impacts skin of color and research that comes out of the Skin of Color Society. Yes. Why is it important to have doctors of color in dermatology? Well, it's very important because one, during my years of training, if you looked at our textbooks, now everything's online, but still, if you look at the training instruments and books and tools and data that we had access to us, they were mainly Caucasian skin or white skin. But when it came to the sexually transmitted diseases, they were all the black skin. And we were like, well, wait a minute biases look like in black skin. We need to know that there's so many patients who are misdiagnosed in their cutaneous diseases because they don't know what it looks like in black skin. 
So that's one of our mission is to educate white dermatologists and white training programs that you got to learn about all skin types. Erythema or redness is appreciated on brown skin. We'll show you how you can tell that the person has redness of their skin. But now we're trying to educate people through images and visual, but also different training and fellowship programs, mentorship programs. And so we're trying to cover it all because we realize that by 2040, we're going to be more than 50% of the population. And physicians are going to need to learn how to treat all skin types. Yeah. And as we talk about the population under 18, we're already a larger percentage of the population than the white population. So it's already started to happen. And I couldn't agree more that we have to be prepared in more ways than one for the implications of what that means for all the things we need not only dermatologically, but in the beauty industry and in many other industries. And really, there was a study that was done that showed it was a consensus in where it showed that people of color, and this was only in the medical field, preferred to see a physician of their same ethnicity. So we've proven that. And we know that they seem to be able to relate by their skin color, culturally, you know, if someone comes to me and say, yeah, I use cocoa butter and I mix it with the blood. If you go to a white dermatologist, they may not even know what you're talking about. And we think, oh, cocoa butter, you don't know cocoa butter? So those kind of things are important in communicating what is wrong with the patient, because sometimes it's what they were doing at home. Right. With their hair, with their scarf, with their whatever. Exactly. You know, I didn't know you tied your hair up. Oh, you didn't? Well, yeah, we do. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the kind of questions because I have white students who rotate with me because they want to learn. And I'm like teaching them the basics. Like, yeah, we tie our hair up at night. And yeah, we grease our scalp sometimes if it's dry. But with seborrheic dermatitis, you want to let people know they shouldn't grease their scalps. But if you don't know they grease their scalps, you're not going to know to tell them that. Exactly. So those are the kind of things that I try to get involved in and the different type of hair. Like it's not uncommon. I'll have a patient who come in and say, you know, I have a hair issue and then I'm all down in the hair. And they're like, you know, the other dermatologists, they didn't even touch my hair. I said, they didn't touch your hair. (laughs) (laughs) So I hear it all the time. Yeah, this is critical. You hold two patents related to techniques. So you're not only kind of in the practical and in the training aspect of it, but you're creating patents. Can you tell me a little bit more about these patents? Yeah, I actually have four patents, really. Uh, <laughs> they're all on the same technique, but I have two U.S. and one Mexican and one Canadian. And basically, in the early 2000s, I was one of probably less than 10 physicians in the U.S. who were treating AIDS patients. And at that time, patients were living longer because of protease inhibitors and 
one of the side effects of it is they had fat wasting. And fat wasting really can occur all over the body, but you can hide the rest with clothing in the face. People were starting to get gaunt looking. And you saw someone who looked like they were really old, but they were 32. And so it made you look older. So the technique that I developed was how to inject and re-sculpt their faces. And so that's what the patents are on. But later on in time, the same technique is used when we're using any filler or enhancement on anyone. So they usually call it a liquid facelift, but it is the same technique that I started like years ago. So a lot of people use the technique now. So I've had the patent probably almost 20 years now. And it's a funny story in how I did the patent though, because of my passion for what I was doing. But I had someone, which another idea I had, tried to steal my idea and a light bulb went off in my head in that one, I never show anybody what I do. And two, I will patent it before I tell anyone. That's unfortunate, but that's real talk right there. Yeah. And you can be so passionate and excited about what you do, but people will try to steal it. And so that's what happened. And I got it patented before anybody could steal it. And so it was a happy ending to that story. But medicine and being in business and working with corporations has taught me a lot. And believe me, corporations are as sneaky as your colleagues. So you really have to be very careful. And get everything in writing. That's right. And non-disclosures. I've learned how to do non-disclosures. Right. Let's talk about one of your collaborations as the co-founder of Black Oba. How did that come to be? I was in my office one day and I was looking to recommend a skincare product. This was right kind of when Accutane had first come out, it was very expensive and not everybody's insurance would approve it. And so I was trying to do some regimens for acne for oily skin people and also preparing them for possibly Accutane. Accutane makes you so dry, you will use products like a dry skin person. But my focus was to make products for oily skin people. So I hooked up with Nikos and Caro Mueres, and this was in like 1993. The only things that were out there, maybe Fashion Fair had some skincare products, but they were primarily focusing on their color cosmetics. And that was pretty much it. Long story short, I told him what I wanted to do because he was a manufacturing company. And he said, you want to go into business together? Because this is such a great idea that I'm on this platform with you. I would like to do this. And that's how we hooked up. So it was great because he had the vertical manufacturing company. And I had the ideas (laughs) and I had the science and Nico was the biochemist as well. So we communicated 
and it all just fell into place. And Nico was just a great guy, rags to riches. And it saddens me that, you know, his life was shortened a couple years ago. He suffered a brain tumor and passed away. And when he got sick, everything kind of just, it wasn't the same. It kind of crumbled. So two years ago, Black Opal was sold and it has new owners now. And I've kind of moved on from that. But we had 25 good years of collaboration and all on the same page. When stuff starts getting off the page and there's no science behind what you're doing, I can't fake science. I'm a scientist. I can't fake science. I worked on two different sides of the business. So somebody who's going to write about it, if there's no science there, I can't write about it. I can't fake that either. If you can't give me the science, I can't make it up. I can't tell the consumer that. Exactly. But my connection to Black Opals, probably mid-90s, I was writing copy and stuff for Nikos. And in between my stint at L, and like I was freelance for like maybe four or five years, I did a lot of stuff for Black Opal. And then came back when I was freelance in between magazine gigs. I worked again for them. So I used to trek out there. (laughs) Yeah, Long Island. Right, Long Island City. And the funny part was that he would say to people, can somebody please just call Corinne? And then if I was in the office, he would walk in and go, I told them to call you because I need you to do (laughs) extra. I just really enjoyed my experience working on the brand when he was vibrant. And I loved the passion behind it. You've moved on from there. It's got a new owner, so good luck to them. But let's talk about the changes happening in dermatology. How do you stay up to date with what's happening? Because so much is happening. Yeah, well, being an investigator, clinical investigator, I do stay up to date. I read a lot. I don't even have time really to read novels or sometimes I'll put a podcast in my car where I'm listening to something other than medicine. But I enjoy reading medicine. I do a lot of publishing. I'm an author of a peer-reviewed textbook on cosmetic dermatology. So I do a lot of writing and I classify as a key opinion leader. So key opinion leaders are like at the top of their game. And to stay at the top of my game, I have to read and I have to do research and I have to lecture And so I'm a national and international invited speaker to a lot of conferences because not only is it just cosmetics, but specifically cosmetics and skin of color. And so I do a lot of lecturing on that and the do's and the don'ts and the adverse events and what not to do to have good outcomes in your skin of color patients. So key opinion leaders in medicine Those are kind of the top 1% of people. So in the general scope of dermatology, not just black dermatologists or skin of color dermatologists, I'm in the top 1%. And when you do make discoveries and you do, you know, have an expertise in something, you have to publish it. So you have to be a good writer and get it out in the peer review. So when we talk about peer review literature, You had about five of your colleagues who really don't want to see this published critique it. (laughs) (laughs) So if you pass that muster, (laughs) 
then you must be pretty good because they have a problem finding errors in it. I really say that that's what I do to keep up. If I don't want to be a key opinion leader, all I have to do is stop all that. Right. You mentioned chemical peels and I'm thinking lasers and there has always been this stay away from them, especially TCH peels and Fraxel lasers and some of the other things. What has changed in that arena that makes it hopeful for people with darker skin? How has advancement changed some of that narrative? The advancement has changed the narrative because Black researchers and investigators have gotten involved. So you have to sometimes change the parameters. So when the FDA approves something, say for white skin and maybe what we call Fitzpatrick skin typing, really people use it incorrectly. It has really nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has to do with how easily you burn when you're in the sun. So white, white folks are going to be one through three. And then you get more yellow skin or Latinos or very light skin blacks are going to be more in a category Fitzpatrick four. And that is primarily because they'll burn. And later in life, you will also see photo damage from the evidence of burning. You may not see redness on them, but you see the evidence. As you get darker, so skin type five and six or more brown skinned people, you see less of those aging changes because our skin doesn't burn as easily. So when they do studies, say with energy and light devices, which are your lasers and your other devices, they usually do one through four. They don't even do research in five and six. For one, they're afraid. But when you figure out the science aspect, that's why that's so important. You figure out the science aspect and then you sometimes half in that fluence and then you work your way up. That's when you get the data for five and six. So how I got into research initially, I tried and tried many years to get in research. No one would give me any of their protocols. Then it got to the point where the FDA said, no, 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 you can't say this procedure's for everybody when you only tested skin type one through four. So then the companies were scrambling, oh, who can we find that can do research on five and six. And usually they say four, five, and six, because four can be black folks as well. And I got so much business, it was overwhelming. I had turned stuff down. Because what they were saying now is that you have to test it in those skin types in order to say you can use it in those skin types, number one. Number two, now we've changed our protocols here to present something to the FDA in a phase three study, your patient demographics has to represent the United States. So if you bring to us a study and there are all white people in it, you're only going to be approved for one through three. If you're trying to get approval from one to six, you got to have 22% black in the study, 12% 
Asian, whatever the census, and we'll know from 2020 what the new census shows, that's the makeup of the studies have to be. So it's no more, I'm just only going to do skin type one through three. Yeah, I think that is amazing. Are there more people coming up through the ranks that are investigators? Sadly, there aren't. And that is one of the objectives or mission of the Skin of Color Society. And we've also um, are getting ready to partner with Procter & Gamble and Allergan, AbbVie Company, to put together educational programs and training programs. We do, as individuals, mentor our underlings, but we need money to do that. We need sponsors to do that. And so we're on the verge of getting that started up because there's maybe seven clinical researchers that are Black in the U.S., believe it or not. It's sad. And all of us are around the same generation. So once we retire or once we kind of leave the business, I don't see any up and coming people yet. And so that's one of our missions is we all probably got another maybe 10 years in us. But other than that, we got to get started so that we can introduce people to these companies that decide who the clinical investigators are going to be. Right. That's really, really important, especially as we talk about the whole shift in population. Oh, yes. So it's going to even become more important. So there's almost like a imperative on you guys to make this happen. Yes. What do you think the unsung skill is to be a successful dermatologist? One, and this is just across the board, you have to have passion with whatever you do. I don't care if you're an auto mechanic, you're dermatologist, or you're stylist. You have to love what you do because I look forward to getting up in the morning. I look forward to what am I going to see today? A lot of times I don't even look at my schedule because I want to be surprised what I'm going to see today and how I'm going to handle it. And that's how you keep your talents up. And because I don't take medical insurance, I usually get a patient who was either far along, more difficult, unresponsive to whatever someone else has prescribed. And so it's very challenging to me. And I thrive on that. Not everybody likes that stress of the day. I just love it. But to be a dermatologist, you have to have compassion for people with maybe not so nice looking skin or what have you. You know, I think a lot of people, because they see the skin as the largest organ, that something's wrong with you. They don't want to sit by you. You see people on the bus or on the subway, and if they have psoriasis or something, they just, you know, I don't want to, that may be contagious. Believe it or not, a lot of stuff is not contagious. Majority, probably 98% of it is not contagious. But people don't know that. So it's really important to have compassion, even when you're with a patient. Like, I understand what you're going through. Let's get through this together. And we're going to try this. But usually when they come to me, like I said, I get their whole history. What have you had and what didn't work? And then I start from there. 
So I'm in kind of a different category of a lot of dermatologists who have to see 60 patients a day. I only see 20 patients a day. And that includes my cosmetic patients. So I have time to sit down and talk to my patients. I also have time to do telehealth visits with my patients. So it's the connection that you need. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really true. As you talked about someone with congestive heart failure versus somebody could have a severe case of PIH or psoriasis, that it's almost like the illness is apparent. So everyone knows where you could maybe have cancer. And if you haven't lost your hair, no one will know. But with these conditions, people know, and there is a feeling of being self-conscious because you feel like eyes are on you because they are, because they're trying to figure out, is that something I can catch? Right, exactly. So it is a challenge and it's a worthwhile field to dedicate to because, you know, when you talked about suicide rates, you know, that there are some serious consequences to these feelings. We can't discount that at all. This is not a frivolous discussion about how we look just so we can look good on Instagram. This is a quality of life and maintain your life issue. Yeah. Like I have patients who come in, a lot of them use Black Opal because they know I co-founded it, but it doesn't matter. It could be Mac or something like that, that like Studio Fix is very high coverage and they come in and I'm like, you have concealer on. Okay, I need you to wash your face. And even just to get people to wash their face so I can see what's going on is a task. So you can tell immediately from the patient that their self-esteem, you know, may be a little bit lowered because of what I'm going to find under the skin. And so once we get on therapy, they ask me a lot of questions before we leave. I said, do you have any questions for me? And it's like, well, should I not wear my makeup? Or and I said, wear your makeup because I know it's going to make them feel better. But you know what? I tell them that soon you will be out of your makeup by choice. You won't have anything to cover up. You're going to see yourself putting on less and less makeup unless you go out or you have a special event or something where you just want to put it all on and look totally finished, like a filter or something. Yeah, you got to do that. But do you have to cake it on every day just to go out to get the mail out the mailbox? You find people will do that on their own accord if their skin's looking good. So I don't lecture them about the makeup and all that stuff because I know they're going to make the decision to stop on their own or limit it on their own. I think that that is a real desirable outcome for somebody that's coming to see you. For anybody who has a skin issue, I have melasma issues, so I can relate to that. Like the goal is to not have to wear makeup. It's not some other thing like, you know, I want to look 20 years younger or whatever. It's I could go without makeup. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. Do you remember the first beauty product you ever tried? Fashion Fair. Was it lipstick or was it the foundation or something? The department store where I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, had a department store beauty counter that actually had Fashion Fair there. 
And I remember when it came, because Tacoma, Washington is not a lot of Blacks, but I remember when they made the counter space for it, all the Black kids, all the Black women, girls were like, oh, I'm going to go get my makeup done. And so I went and got my makeup done and ended up buying the foundation pack. And that was my first makeup. I didn't buy any eyeshadow, no blush, no nothing. It was just the foundation. And that's all I could afford. I think I was in high school when I went. So that was my first makeup. What's the latest product you tried? Well, I was using a product out of Barcelona. I do research for this company called ISDEN. And ISDEN is based out of Barcelona, and they're really known for their sunscreens. And so they have so many sunscreens that are wonderful for skin of color. I have a sunscreen. I can't get it here because <laughs> I got it when I was over there. So I just use as little bit as I can <laughs> only on my face. The cheap brands on my body, but on my face, I'm going to use this ISDEN, and I just love it. They have different sunscreens. In fact, one just was FDA approved for the U.S., and I carry it in my office. And it's also, believe it or not, it's a physical block, and most physical blocks look very ashy on people, but I figured out a way how to use them so that they don't look like them on the body or on the face. And so that's the only thing I use now because it helps you with blue light, which is like your devices, your phone, things like that. And particularly for you, Corinne, the melasma is activated by blue light. It's activated by indoor light. It's activated by UVA, UVB outside. So you really want to cover yourself a lot. I'm sure you're in front of the computer a lot or a tablet or something. And it can stimulate discoloration in your skin. So that's my number one product right now that I preach to everybody, all my patients, everybody, because there are some studies that have recently come out that those that contain iron oxide, which help with the blue light, like device lights and things like that, actually helps to blend the complexion as well. So there's some municipal value to it. So that's like my number one product. Well, I think that's great. I have been really, really diligent about putting sunscreen, even if I'm not going outside on my face. I've been very diligent about that because I guess it was last year's Skin of Color event where they started talking about blue light being an issue. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You can't cook because the heat from the stove and the oven. I mean, it's like everything will irritate melasma. Yep. But it makes me interested in the category because it's going to be something new. I'm going to try it. (laughs) What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? The beauty advice that I live by is I think clear skin, regardless if you get cosmetic procedures, regardless if you read about different things that you can do because you're in this decade of life or what have you, 
I think across the board, across the decades, clear skin is going to be number one. And studies have shown that. And I have to agree. I hate going without makeup sometimes, you know, like eye makeup or whatever. I just like the look. But do I have to? When people see me without makeup, they're like, oh, wow, your skin is really beautiful. And especially during COVID, I didn't put makeup on because I wasn't leaving the house and I was doing Zoom meetings and I didn't think anybody could tell the difference. But people thought I had makeup on and I'm like, no, I just I've always loved makeup since that time going to the beauty counter and getting the fashion fair. I just always love that finished look. And I know every day I put on blush and eye shadow and mascara and liner and lipstick and stuff like that. I mean, I put on the foundation every day, but I think clear skin is just across all decades. We've talked about the teenagers and the acne. We talked about anti-aging. We've talked about discoloration from melasma. And again, it all goes back to common denominator is clear skin. And that makes you look healthy. It's very true. If you're 90 years old and you have clear skin. Yeah. That's the first thing you're going to say to a little old lady. Oh, your skin looks so good. (laughs) (laughs) It is so true. Is there a product you can't live without? My sunscreen. I cannot live without the sunscreen. Because actually, I have a little bit of melasma too. And if I go out in the sun and I'm like in it too long, I'll see it appear. It's on my right cheek. I know exactly where it is and I'll see it appear. So that's kind of like my moisturizer sunscreen. It's like brushing your teeth and washing your face every morning. It's just a habit you're going to do. Yes. If someone wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? Well, one, for dermatology, it has become the most difficult residency to get into. So I suggest to people that I mentor, particularly the youth, is in high school. If you think you want to do medicine, if you think you want to do cosmetology or what have you in the beauty stylish field, kind of hone in on and go and see how you would like and get a mentor in those fields. Because if it's medicine, we need to start working at high school. Because one, you want to be prepared to take your boards after your second year of medical school, which unbelievable. Those are the scores they look at four years down the road when you're applying for dermatology. So a lot of people don't know that, but they're looking at their part one board scores. And at that time, most people who enter into medical school, at least in the first two years, you don't know what you want to do. Preparation for the boards, regardless if you want to do dermatology, I would think starts high school, college, and then you prepare to get into medical school and you bust those boards out. And any specialty in medicine can rely on those board scores. It's just dermatology is so difficult to get into. It's people, I think they gravitate towards a specialty that isn't captured by restrictions in insurance reimbursement. Cosmetic is definitely 
no insurance covers any of that. So it's fee for service. And people, you know, after 300,000, 400,000 in debt coming out of medical school, they want to get into a specialty where they can pay their loans and buy a house and buy a car, you know, and get back to life. I mean, think about it. You put 20 years of schooling in when you finish and everybody else has put in eight years less than that. So you're behind the eight ball a number of years and you're like, well, when I get out, I want a car too. So there is a lot to think about. If you're thinking about dermatology, you've got to start early. And if you don't start early, then you got to figure out a way to buckle down and catch up. Right. And sometimes research, getting a mentor, getting someone to guide you through the fast track. I mean, I had to do it through the school of hard knocks because I had no mentor, but there's a lot of mentors out there now that the current youth and people who are thinking about it have plenty of people who can put them under their wing and guide them along the pathway because it's definitely being done on our counterparts. Absolutely. And we need to do the same thing. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. This has been an amazing conversation and such great information just about understanding the importance of a Black dermatologist. You know, yes, we prefer a practitioner that looks like us, but it's not just the comfort, but it's the knowledge. And then when we start to talk about the investigative portion of it, the need for that is great. And if you're in dermatology now, you need to think about... <laughs> <laughs> if you just broke in, you need to think about how you're going to be the next round of investigative research because we need you. You know, we need people who can do that. We can't just rely on one generation of doctors to hold it down for us. Right. I totally agree. And I really appreciate this platform, getting that out there, that medicine is part of beauty when it comes to dermatology. Yes, absolutely. And I say thanks again for joining me. It has been my pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here.